I've been thinking a lot about the impact of technology on philosophy and how technology can illuminate or sometimes even transform philosophical questions. And these are really exciting times right now in technology with you know, massive advances just the last few years in, for example, artificial intelligence and virtual reality that's got them in use on a wider scale than ever. You know, both of these technologies raise very deep philosophical questions. I and mean, what's artificial intelligence? That's an artificial mind. What's virtual reality? That's an artificial world. And this is great for a philosopher because philosophy, as I see, is all about thinking about the nature of the mind, the nature of the world, and the connection between them. How can a mind know about the world, for example? In the past, I've thought a lot about the mind and, and consciousness. And when you're doing that, it becomes very natural to think about artificial intelligence. You know, could a computer have a mind? Could it be conscious? What kind of mind would it have? And about technology like smartphones as extensions of the mind. But lately, I've actually been getting especially interested in questions about the world and about artificial worlds. Now, virtual reality is basically a technology for creating artificial worlds. Virtual reality, as I understand it, it's a world, it's an environment which is generated by a computer, which you look at through a uh, something like a headset, an Oculus Rift or an HTC Vive or one of the Google Cardboard devices that gives you an immersive interaction with a computer-generated artificial world. The expression virtual reality uh, was made widespread by Jaron Lanier and others back in the 1980s as this technology started to be developed. It was actually the term virtual reality was first put forward in the 1930s by the French theater scholar Antoine Artaud, who um, talked about the theater as a kind of virtual reality, reality virtual, with apologies for my, uh, my French accent. He saw the theater as a way of generating um, an alternative kind of reality here with human actors on a stage that would give an immersive experience for those people watching it. These days we use the term virtual reality more specifically for something which is an environment which is generated by a computer. In fact, if you want to define a virtual reality, one way to do it is a virtual reality environment is an environment which is computer-generated, which is immersive. It's, it's as if we're in the middle of a whole three-dimensional world, which we're fully immersed in, and it's interactive. We can interact with that environment. It makes a difference to us. We make a difference to it. So I'd say full-scale virtual reality is an immersive, interactive, computer-generated environment. Of course, ordinary physical reality meets two of those three conditions. It's immersive, feels like I'm in the middle of it, and it's interactive, I'm interacting with it, but it's presumably not computer-generated, so it only meets two out of three. Um, virtual reality is, takes the immersiveness and interactiveness and brings in the role of the computer in generating this reality um, artificially. So think of it, if you like, as an artificial world. Um, this just raises any number of of questions. I mean, prime among them is, is a virtual reality that you're interacting with, is that a genuine reality? Or is it some kind of illusion, some kind of fiction? 
there's a long history of people saying virtual reality is a kind of second-class reality. Um, I think it was William Gibson, the neuromancer, who said cyberspace, meaning virtual reality, is a consensual hallucination. It's a hallucinated reality, something that doesn't even exist. You watch a movie like The Matrix, and it's, it's portrayed as if it's all an illusion. It's not real at all. I'm inclined to think this is actually the wrong way to think about virtual reality, that a virtual world is just as real as a physical world. When one inhabits a virtual reality, when one puts on an Oculus Rift, or even perhaps when one's playing a non-immersive video game like a World of Warcraft, one is interacting with a genuine digital reality. One's, when one sees one's avatar in virtual reality, that's a real body. It's just a digital body. When one's in one's environment, when one is interacting with other people, when one, say, in an environment like Second Life, you and the other people in that world are inhabiting a genuine digital world. And there's nothing fictional about it. It's a digital reality, to be sure. It's a different kind of reality from the physical reality that we're used to, but it's, but it's perfectly real for all that. For all that, I mean, this is really interesting for a philosopher because it goes back to a thought experiment put forward by Rene Descartes back in the, uh, the 17th century in his Meditations on First Philosophy, and this is the thought experiment of the evil demon. How do you know that an evil demon isn't fooling you? into thinking that uh, there's a world out there of objects and things and trees and people when none of it exists. And we're supposed to think that uh, everything we're seeing could be an illusion. Well, of course, the modern version of that is basically, how do you know you're not in a simulation right now? How do you know you're not in a simulated reality when none of this really exists? And of course, that's basically the question. How do you know you're not in a virtual reality. Maybe I've been living in a virtual reality my whole life, in which case we're supposed to conclude that all this is illusory. None of it really exists at all. I'm inclined to think this is, again, the wrong way to think about virtual reality or simulations. Simulated worlds are perfectly real worlds. They're just digital worlds, worlds fundamentally grounded in information. If it turns out, for example, we're living in a digital virtual reality, we shouldn't say that none of the stuff around us really exists. We should say that we're living in a world where everything is grounded in information. It's a little bit like uh, Wheeler's famous it-from-bit hypothesis. All of reality is grounded in information. Wheeler put that forward as a hypothesis about physics. Now, physics might be grounded in the interplay of information, but this was meant to be a hypothesis about reality. It wasn't one that made reality some kind of illusion. Physics is still real. It's grounded in information. My view is that's the right way to think about virtual reality. If we are in a virtual reality, we're living in an it-from-bit universe where all this is grounded in information. Now, some people, of course, have speculated that we ourselves may be living in a virtual reality, that our own environment may actually be virtual. And this is the hypothesis that we ourselves are living in a uh, computer simulation, have been 
since the beginning. That's the hypothesis you know, made famous by movies like uh, like The Matrix. More recently, uh, the philosopher Nick Bostrom has given some reason that maybe we ought to actually take this hypothesis seriously, uh, probabilistically. There are going to be many simulation technologies getting better and better. We're going to um, presumably generate more and more complex simulated worlds as our technology goes on. And you might well expect that any intelligent civilization will end up producing multiple simulated universes. And that then raises the question, there's probably going to be many more simulated universes than unsimulated universes, many more simulated beings than unsimulated beings, in which case, Bostrom asked, yeah, what, are the, what are the odds that we are one of the, the lucky ones, the few unsimulated beings at level zero? Much more likely that we're one of the simulated beings way down there, much more likely that we're in a simulation. Now, there's various ways that can, that can go wrong, but I think at the very least, it gives us some reason to take seriously the hypothesis that, you know, we could be inhabiting a, a virtual reality and to think about what follows. You think of the simulation hypothesis, the hypothesis that we're in a simulation, as a version of the multiverse idea, that there are multiple universes coexisting. Because you know, Our universe will be a local universe, which is a simulation. Presumably, whoever created this simulation created other simulations. Maybe they created a million simulations overnight, just slightly different parameters to watch them run and see what happens. So there's a multiverse, a million simulated universes right there, all contained within another universe at the next level up. And who's to say, of course, that that universe is not simulated too. So this gives you a kind of branching multiverse structure of universes within universes, within universes. Maybe there's a top-level universe which is not simulated, but at every level beneath this, there'll be simulations within simulations within simulations. I mean, some people have speculated maybe there's a theology here. Whoever created our universe, the simulator, well, that's in a way, that's our God. Well, it's our creator. This being might be all-powerful, able to control our universe, all-knowing, knowing what's, uh, what's everything that's going on in our universe. Some people have even proposed that we should be, uh, you know, maybe forming religions around, uh, around the idea that our simulator is our God. Now, I'm not a religious person myself, and I think this would be, uh, there's something in this idea. I mean, this being really would be, would count as a creator. It would be all-powerful. It would be all-knowing. At the same time, this would all, I think, be naturally explicable in terms of, say, the laws of physics, just the laws of physics of the next universe up. There'd be nothing supernatural about it. And more importantly, I think, is that to be a religion, I mean, there's got to be something like worship or some very deep spirituality involved. I don't see any reason why a being simply in virtue of creating our universe by simulation, uh, in virtue of knowing everything and being all-powerful, that, that might give us respect for this being, maybe even a kind of awe. But I'm not going to worship that being. You know, who knows? Maybe it's just a teenage hacker in the next universe up that's uh, created this universe for fun. Well, great, and I'm glad that I exist, so thank you. But, you know, I refuse to worship you. And if you ask me, that is actually... Look, I, I'm, I'm an atheist for, uh, for a number of reasons, but the most fundamental reason I have 
to being an atheist is I cannot imagine a being that would be worthy of worship, that would deserve worship. It just seems an inappropriate attitude to me to have towards any being, so even if there is an all-powerful, locally all-powerful creator. Well, well, wonderful, but I'm not going to erect a religion around you. So I'd be inclined to say at best these beings, our simulators might be gods with a lowercase g, not gods with a capital G. And of course, the question just arises at the next universe up, at the next level up. Who created them? Did someone create the whole system of universes? And I see no particular reason to think so. Maybe if you wanted a genuine traditional god, you'd need a god of the entire multiverse, someone who created the whole multiverse rather than just a local god who created this local universe. And as far as I can tell, there's no particular reason to think there has to be some god responsible for creating the whole multiverse. So no, so the chances are the god you're going to get from this kind of simulation theology is extremely watered-down god that would probably seem somewhat blasphemous from the tradition, from the perspective of, of traditional religion. Well, people will make religions out of anything, you know. So there is a strong religious imperative that you find in many people, which I don't share myself. So, I mean, it may well be that some people are going to want to make religion out of the idea of a, of a simulation that, and that within decades we're going to have simulation theology and simulation religion all around us with people pay, praying to their great god, the simulator, the creator. Now, I think that would be a terrible mistake. Um, I don't think anyone ought to be making a religion out there. I don't think anyone ought to be forming their moral code based on the idea we're in a... Uh, we're in a simulation. At the same time, the simulation idea is extremely interesting because of the possibility of giving even a watered-down version of the traditional theistic hypothesis of God in a framework that seems compatible with science. I don't want to say this is a scientific idea in the sense that it's one that science has demonstrated or even might demonstrate. I think it could well be that we're in a simulation. Maybe we'll never get uh, get proof of this. Or if we're not, maybe we also can't get proof. So I don't want to say we're exactly in the, in the territory of a scientific hypothesis. It's more perhaps of a philosophical hypothesis. But interestingly, it is a version of God which is consistent with science in a way that you might have thought many other versions of science somehow require positing something that goes beyond our general scientific picture of the world, spirits or forces or all goodness and love, well, you know, the simulation hypothesis just doesn't do that. All we need is physics in the next universe up. All we need is technology that we already understand, the technology of creating artificial worlds. Um, there are probably going to be artificial worlds. Then we just change perspective and say, maybe we're there. And this could be our situation. We are created in a completely scientifically explicable way. So again, don't make religion of that, but still you get some components of the traditional religious view. Creation. Power and knowledge, perhaps, of the, uh, of the, of the creator. I mean, some people might speculate on the possibilities of an afterlife. If we're able, for example, to, uh, if we are ultimately code, then that code could be uploaded into a different environment, maybe the environment of the next universe up. So think of it as a science-compatible version of ordinary religion. Some people do see, uh, do see virtual reality as a, 
as a way of living forever, at least in a virtual reality. This wonderful TV show, Black Mirror, had an episode recently that illustrated where the main characters get to upload themselves into a virtual reality environment and live forever as a kind of heaven. And it was all very idyllic. They live on a beach with gauzy, uh, gauzy music and drive around in their sports car. You know, I've got a feeling that heaven is going to actually going to get kind of boring after a uh, after a, uh, a year or two, and they're going to wish for a somewhat more substantial reality to live in. But I think you know it may well be that in the future we develop virtual realities for us to uh, to us to hang out in that are as substantive and as interesting as genuine reality, and many people may choose to spend their lives inhabiting those virtual realities. What is missing, if anything, in a simulated world? You can recreate all the causal structure of a world in a simulated world and connect it up to a conscious human being who interacts with it. Is there something fundamental that's missing? Some people think life in that kind of virtual simulated reality would would be meaningless or would be valueless. In fact, the philosopher Robert Nozick had an experiment he liked it, had a thought experiment he liked to tell. The case of the experience machine. Just say you had the option of entering into a machine for the rest of your life that would simulate your world and would produce all kinds of wonderful experiences where you were successful and had wonderful friends and became you know, the world champion of whatever. And, but it was all pre-programmed and it was all simulated. And Nozick said... You would not choose to enter that world. I would not choose to enter that world. Many people have taken that to to be a reason to think that virtual reality is somehow second class, at least in the sense of being valueless, meaningless, not a way in which you could live a fulfilling life. I think that Nozick, again, was actually... Either Nozick was wrong about that, or at least his, his reasoning does not support this conclusion about virtual reality being, uh, being meaningless. I think one thing you do get out of Nozick's thought experiment is that living in a pre-programmed reality in which everything that happens to you is foreordained by certain creators is basically, if not meaningless, lacks much of what we find meaningful in our lives, which is the challenge of living our own lives, creating our lives, overcoming obstacles, and creating our own destiny. A pre-programmed environment won't give us that. But importantly, a virtual reality. There's no reason why a virtual reality has to be pre-programmed. In fact, part of the very definition of virtual reality that I gave before is it's interactive. You, the person at the center, are inhabiting a virtual reality. You get control. You still get to think. You get to control your body. You get to interact with others. You have as much free will, I think, in a virtual reality, in principle at least, as you do in a non-virtual Reality. So as far as I can tell, pre-programming is not, a, is not a count against virtual reality. And I myself don't see why you shouldn't be able to live a life in a virtual environment, which is as meaningful, as fulfilling, at least in principle, as life in a non-virtual environment. Of course, for now, the virtual environments are very stripped down and sparse, and the entities' interactions within them are not as rich as in ordinary physical reality, but give it a few years, um, you know, within a decade or two, I'm sure we're going to have virtual reality that begins to be visually and auditorily at least indistinguishable from worlds 
like ours. I mean, some things are going to be harder. The role of the body. Hunger, thirst, sex, birth, death. Okay, so some things are going to take a while to build in to virtual reality. But I suspect within a century or two, there will be Matrix-style virtual reality, which is more or less indistinguishable from our kind of reality. And then the question arises, would that Matrix-style virtual reality, indistinguishable from our reality, perhaps better in some ways, that may contain features that we can't even imagine now, would there be something fundamentally deficient about that reality, such that if you chose to spend your life in it, you'd be somehow missing something vital that gives life meaningful gives life meaning. And some people take that attitude to virtual reality, but I'm inclined to think, no, there's nothing that would be missing in principle. One's life there could be could be just as meaningful, and it may well turn out that if we treat our world badly, then living in a uh, living in a virtual environment is going to be an attractive option for uh, for some people. The world may be much may, may be much more inhabitable, and I'm sure we're going to face a debate, maybe even a political debate about the division between the virtual and the non-virtual. And there's probably a lot to be said on either side, but I don't see any fundamental philosophical obstacle. I've always been fascinated by technology. In fact, uh, back when I was 12, the first microcomputers came out. And I remember going to the store and playing with a TRS-80. Before long, when I was 14, I got my first Apple II computer. My parents gave it to me uh, for present, uh, for a Christmas present. I loved playing with, uh, with, uh, with these computers. I'd actually, the very first virtual reality I inhabited was not an immersive virtual reality. I played an old text adventure game, original adventure, which took place in Colossal Cave, and you interacted with dwarves and treasures, and you threw axes at them, all through a text interface. But nonetheless, you got the sense of a virtual world, or this system of caves, which seemed very real to me, and it was implemented on a computer. Now, later on, of course, virtual reality got much, much better. It got, got image technology and eventually turned 3D. But some of the basic ideas were present back there. What is the nature of this reality I was interacting with in Colossal Cave? Later on, I went on to, I studied math, and I went on to do my PhD in an AI lab in Doug Hofstadter's artificial intelligence lab in Indiana, where I'm surrounded by people working on, basically on artificial minds, or at least on artificial cognition, thinking about how you could get the processes of the mind running on computers. So I did my own PhD in philosophy, but I did, uh, and I concentrated on consciousness, but at the same time I was doing a lot with computers from the start. So I've basically always been a computer junkie, and it seems to me that computers are especially interesting to a philosopher and to anyone else because they give ways of artificially recreating almost anything you like. They recreate you know, the underlying structure of anything you like can be at least simulated and partially recreated on a computer. I thought for a long time about that in the case of the brain. You know, what happens, for example, if we recreate the structure of the brain on a computer by interacting silicon chips where you had interacting neurons? Would it be missing anything? that's missing in a mind. And I'd like to think that actually a computer could be, uh, could be conscious. There's a long tradition of thinking about technology in philosophy, and especially about information technology, ever since the computer age got going in the uh, 
in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, Turing, Alan Turing himself, published his original article on the Turing test in Mind, uh, the philosophy journal, around 1950. And rapidly afterwards, philosophers began paying attention. Hilary Putnam, the great philosopher in the 1960s, started publishing articles on minds as machines, the computer model of the mind that led to what they called functionalism, which is basically a computer-inspired philosophical theory of the mind. And really, it never looked back, at least for some decades. Dan Dennett did all kinds of um, extremely important work that brought in computational thinking to thinking about the mind um, and thinking about AI. In particular, Jerry Fodor, who's another philosopher of mind, I think was not quite so keen on AI, but nonetheless was giving a computationally grounded theory of mind from the start. So these ideas have always been very important in philosophy. When I was a graduate student in the late 80s and early 90s, everyone in the philosophy of mind was thinking very hard about artificial intelligence. Then the, the big thing was neural networks, neural network theories of the mind and where these were going. Interestingly, it all sort of the bottom dropped out for a while in the mid-90s when, first of all, the neural network movement hit a brick wall and people started focusing their AI dropped off the uh, sort of the intellectual scene for a little while, except in certain small um, small parts for 10 or 15 years. For 10 or 15 years, philosophers weren't paying that much attention. I think a lot of people weren't paying that much attention to AI. Now, suddenly, in the last, just in the last two or three years, all that has really changed again, in part because of the resurgence of AI. Interestingly, the very same neural network technology that was big when I was a student now rebranded as deep learning, powered by much greater computational power, much bigger data sets and bigger networks, has proved to be able to do things far beyond what it could do back in the, the 90s. That's, that's driven some of the interest. Someone once said, if the mind was so simple we could understand it, we'd be too simple to understand the mind. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is something essentially complex and inexplicable about the mind, and maybe deeper learning, part of its charm is that it's a machine learning system that develops things we simply could not have understood or predicted in advance. I mean, the technology of deep learning is not something new. It's the same technology of neural networks and backpropagation that was big 25 years ago. It's crossed a threshold, though, into being useful in a way which it just wasn't. It. Image recognition, speech recognition, and so on have just gotten to the point where they're now useful in a widespread way. And with companies like Google and Facebook and so on that have all that data, it's made things possible that simply weren't possible before. And of course, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, are going to be a big part of that. So I suspect there's not exactly going to, there's not going to be an AI winter. Um, you know, the technology is just too useful, and now it's going to have massive amounts of funding poured into it through the industry, whether it's for autonomous vehicles or machine recognition or whatever, but it does leave the question open: Is there actually going to be a fundamental intellectual breakthrough? I mean, I think we've had small breakthroughs the last few years, but not yet a major breakthrough. Right. One thing I'm really interested to see over the next decade is what it turns out that these deep learning systems can do, and what turn out to be the fundamental obstacles. And it wouldn't surprise me if we uh, we come to the view that you know we still need three fundamental breakthroughs to get to human level AI and that ends up taking another 50 to 100 years. I always swore that I was never going to write about ethics. Um, Even though ethics is part of philosophy and 
philosophers are supposed to be experts on ethics. Oh, I thought, I don't have any special ethical insight. That's not where my talent lies. Why should anyone listen to me on this stuff? But lately I've been getting drawn in a bit to uh, ethical questions. I, was, I got an invitation from the Presidential Commission on Bioethics to talk about the Obama Brain Initiative, where they'll be you know, potentially recording brain patterns and starts to bring in ethical questions about uploading your mind onto a, uh, onto a computer and privacy and identity implications. But I think AI, artificial intelligence in particular, raises some pretty deep ethical questions because of the impact, the huge impact of AI on the world. I mean, it's coming up even in the near term with, for example, debates about autonomous weapons and autonomous vehicles and how we can control those. They don't kill too many people. More subtly, with things like uh, machine classification technology, um, how to avoid, for example, you know, deep learning systems basically giving you racist or sexist outcomes when they, for example, classify people from cer of certain races or from certain zip codes as being ineligible to receive loans or as more likely to commit criminal offenses. I mean, mindful of ethical issues there. We had this whole conference at NYU recently on the ethics of AI focusing partly on those issues, but especially on the long-term issues. What happens when machines are as intelligent, as powerful as humans and beyond? Because everything that's going to happen then is going to be, at least in part, a function of what those machines want, what they have as their goals, what they have as their, their values. So we need to think very seriously about the values that go into those machines and how machines will go about following them. This is a place where philosophers have had something to contribute over the years about what the fundamental values are. I think there's at least an interesting project of thinking about what are the kinds of values you could instill in a machine. Who controls the values and the goals that go into the AIs? Is it Google and Facebook, and the industry that gets to program these things? Is it the government? Um, is it somehow a collective? Is it just whoever is lucky enough to invent the first greater than human level AI? You know, people, there's, a, there's a debate to have about that. You know, whose values? Because we don't have a single set of collective human values. Whose society? And I think what's going to happen is that it's already happening. People thinking about the future of AI are having this, this debate. So I started out as a mathematician. I was always a math geek growing up. I was doing math competitions and math this and math that, and I got through my undergraduate degree in Australia, and I went to Oxford, and I was always going to study math, but, but some, partly because it seemed to me that math was the most fundamental level of explaining things in reality. You know, we're used to the idea there's a great chain of the sciences, and chemistry explains biology, and physics explains chemistry. It always seemed to me that that mathematics was at the basis even of physics and somehow was more fundamental. And that was why I was drawn to mathematics. But, you know, I never really knew about philosophy. It eventually came to me to see if you really want to understand all of those things, mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, how all of them fit together, you have to ask some philosophical questions about the nature of reality, about explanation, about how everything fits together. And in particular, I was drawn to, you know, what are the really fundamental questions about reality? And so much, seems to be by this time, late 1980s, so much of the world is still now well understood. Math, pretty well understood. Physics, not perfectly understood, pretty well understood. What is it that we really fundamentally do not understand? 
And the thing that stuck out to me like a sore thumb was consciousness. You know, the human mind in general, but in particular consciousness, subjective experience. We just did not have a clue as to how subjective experience fits into our standard scientific picture of reality. I think that's something which many people will still concede today. So I said, okay, well, that's what I want to think about. There's a topic here which is absolutely fundamental, absolutely familiar, but still absolutely ill-understood. It's a complete mystery. So how can we study consciousness? And to me, the best way into the subject was through philosophy. I could have gone into psychology or neuroscience and you know, sat on the bench or done experiments, but it seemed to me those were always going to be fairly limited and piecemeal approaches, especially at the beginning for a young scientist before tenure and so on. It seemed to me to approach it from the, uh, to take the big picture on consciousness, really the best way to do that was through philosophy, where you can exploit the work that scientists are doing, but try to integrate it all together. And, you know, people like um, Dan Dennett and many others have, have shown that that's, that that's possible. So I got drawn in to thinking about consciousness while still thinking about computers mm-hmm. and everything else. And eventually came to seem to me there was a very huge problem here we didn't understand, and I ended up um, you know, writing a book all about the hard problem of consciousness, and I spent a lot of my life working on, on that topic, the place of the mind and consciousness in the, uh, in the physical world. But at the same time, this fascination with computers has never gone away. And as a philosopher, you get to think about the nature of the mind and the nature of the world. And my focus has, has lately been going more and more to the technology and more and more to the world side of the equation. Actually, I mean, an intermediate point was when I started doing work with Andy Clark on the extended mind, which is the idea that the technology we use somehow becomes part of our minds. So, you know, my smartphone, for example, is becoming part of my memory system. We all, you know, we used to use our biological brains to remember phone numbers. Who uses their brain to remember a phone number anymore? Your, uh, your smartphone does it instead. And Andy and I argued that our technology was literally becoming extensions of our, uh, of our minds. This is extending the mind out into the world. And this is something which digital technology does for us. But, you know, virtual reality technology is taking this just another step further with these artificial worlds. Actually, coming very soon is going to be augmented reality technology, where everyone is going to be uh, augmented reality technologies, where you see the physical world, but there's also virtual objects, virtual entities that you perceive in the middle of them. Maybe we'll, we'll put on um, you know, virtual augmented reality glasses, and we'll, we'll have augmented uh, entities out there, maybe computer screens that we're using, maybe to recognize someone. My face recognition is not so great, but uh, maybe my augmented glasses will, will tell me, ah, that's John Brockman. And a bit of AI inside my virtual, my augmented reality glasses will recognize people for me. My firm prediction is that smartphones are going to disappear the way that pagers did. And part of the reason is we're going to start, everything's going to be in our glasses. Who's going to need a uh, smartphone once you're wearing glasses or contact lenses that just project screens into the world in front of you far bigger, more readable, more engaging than anything you can get on a smart top, on a smartphone mm-hmm. or even a desktop computer and much more interactive. So, I mean, it's already, it's in development and in two or three years, uh, that kind of stuff is going to start to be um, out there more. But in 10 or 15 years, I think it's going to become our, my guess is that's going to become our fundamental way of interacting with computers and no one's actually going to there's not going to be such a need for screens in, 
in everyday life. That's just my prediction. You know, there are, there are going to be things. AI is going to start to be integrated with those things. So then, although you know, I've been talking here as if AI is one topic and virtual reality is another topic, but the day is coming when they are integrated, when, for example, we use glasses to project an augmented reality, computationally generated environment with all kinds of information, partly driven by AI or recognize people for us. It will give us recommended routes. You know, Google Maps will be there in the, uh, in the, uh, in the glasses too. And at that level, AI is going to start to become, artificial intelligence will start to become an extension of my mind. I suspect before long, we're all going to become very reliant. I'm already very reliant on my, uh, on my smartphone and my computers. At, these things are going to become more and more ubiquitous part of our lives. So this just for... For philosophers, I mean, the mind starts bleeding into the world. You know, so many parts of the world are becoming parts of our parts of our mind, and eventually we start moving towards this increasingly digital reality. And that raises the questions I started with: How real is all of this? And it's ultimately going to be an interaction of artificial or augmented minds with artificially augmented worlds. And I think it's this augmentation, this mixing of the natural, the physical and the artificial, both on the side of the mind and on the side of the world that's in our, our future. You know, AI or-